listening to the Really Useful Podcast. This is the tech podcast for technophobes from makeuseof.com. As ever, we've got all the latest tech news that matters, some tips and tricks to help you make better use of your tech, and some recommendations. With me this week is Ben Stegner. How are you doing, Ben? Doing fantastic. I'm uh, excited to be chatting with you again. I feel like it's been a couple weeks. Either feast or famine, right? Okay, so we have got a bunch of news for you. We've got some tips and tricks for you. And we've got our recommendations as stated. We will go straight into the news because this is kind of big and it's kind of also meh depending on where you sit on console gaming. Microsoft is developing a new Xbox, but it is not an Xbox Series X successor or anything like that. It is codenamed Keystone, and it is basically, I guess, the Microsoft version of Google Stadia. It is a hub through which you can play games on the cloud via Xbox Game Pass's ultimate plan. It's designed purely for streaming instead of rendering graphics, so the cost of the console is expected to be a lot less, and, of course, all the rendering will take place on a remote server, and you, it'll be, you know... Will this be the Netflix of gaming that everyone expected Stadia and then the NVIDIA service to be? What do you think, Ben? I think it might be. I, I, we talked a little bit about Stadia before, and I, I've made it clear I wasn't a huge... I mean, I never tried it myself, but just the, the concept I thought was weird because yeah. the, the general idea was if you're into these games, you probably already have a console to play them on, and it wasn't accessible enough for newcomers that maybe don't really play games or didn't have a console. I think this could have a chance, and it's mainly just because Game Pass is so good. I think part of the problem with Stadia is that the selection of games was just kind of random for lack of a better term like it was just here's some games but game pass has so many it has all of xbox's big games it has a lot of good indie games there's classics on there so someone who maybe didn't get a next gen system only plays games occasionally or only likes microsoft games it's a way lower barrier to entry and you get a ton of great games for not a whole lot of money i think of course it'll live and die on you know if people can actually stream the games you know if they're in a remote area where the internet access is slow it's still going to be a roadblock but i can see this doing better than stadia because the game plan is so much better well i'm a bit confused about this because um it was initially expected to be some sort of dongle And now it is apparently a tiny thing that's about an inch thick with a square form factor similar to the top of an Xbox Series X shaved off. Um, And the final version that's released to consumers may look fairly different. But I'm looking at this and I'm looking at things like Stadia and NVIDIA and Steam. And, you know, you can play those as apps on existing smart TVs or set-top boxes. And so I'm. it seems to me that this is not necessary, that Microsoft could just ship um, the Xbox app as an app for TV, smart TVs and, you know, set-top boxes and stuff and do away with this entire hardware layer. Yeah, it makes me wonder what the point of that is. Because yeah. um, you think about like the Steam Link that was a physical device yeah. for streaming games, and then now you can just do it on your phone without. A, there's an app, but no additional hardware. I don't. I'm not sure. I, I guess with that little device you have to buy, it would be interesting if there was like a small amount of storage on there, so you could keep like one game offline that you wouldn't have to stream. Other than that, maybe they. I don't know. 
maybe they I can't think of anything else they want to have in there I mean they've kind of abandoned the Xbox One's original vision of being like your TV entertainment center box yeah so I don't know why the hardware would really be necessary when it could just be a dongle or an app like you said yeah so uh, we'll see where that goes but um, there's obviously still questions around uh, Project Keystone which we'll no doubt come back to in future Microsoft accidentally allowed any PC to upgrade to Windows 11 a few days ago. This bug appeared on the Windows 11 22H2 release preview. So um, it's a special build that given to um, people who are part of the uh, Windows Insider group. So it wouldn't have happened to just anyone. But uh, even so, it's an interesting bug. Windows 11 is um, still not available for every PC that's capable of running it. Yeah, and uh, I guess people might be excited if they saw that notice come up and thought hey i can upgrade now and then you really actually shouldn't have um yeah i, I mean i guess this this will get more people on windows 11 just not how microsoft intended right? <laughs> <laughs> we have a few comments on this article there's an interesting comment here by a gentleman called ralph bromley says they should just let it happen windows 11 is a failure and it's making little traction this is a key bit no one is buying new hardware just to have windows 11 in this economy i've got to say i do feel as though he's kind of got a good point there Oh, no, yeah, I completely agree. Because um, it's not like this is the old days of, I'm trying to think, I mean, I, if it was like Vista to 7 kind of thing, or Vista, or even 8 to 10, you know, where the yeah. one that you're on sucks, and you, you would pay to get off of it. I mean, Windows 10 is still fi- great, even not really fine, it's not really, you know, it's, it's great. Um, it's going to be supported for years. There's not really, there's very few things for the average person that are part of Windows 11 that you like would want, really want to upgrade for. So I, I agree. I, mean, I, I can't imagine someone, like I, I built a new computer just because it was time for me to and I used all the time, but it wasn't like I built a new computer just to put Windows 11 on. Like I don't, even I didn't care and we're tech yeah. enthusiasts, you know? Yeah. Yes. Um. I, I can't see Windows 11 being hugely successful in the way that 10 was. Certainly. Which is a give. I mean, it's a shame because it looks nice and everything, but I don't think it does an awful lot different to Windows 10, does it? If I would have, I mean, this is fairly superficial, but if I would have, if there was one thing that I could have asked or, you know, if if I was in charge and I would have changed, it would be like all just overhauling all of the visuals of Windows 11. Because when Windows. Seven came out. There were still in an eight. There were still a bunch of UI elements that were borrowed from the XP days. Yeah. And then when Windows Ten came out, there were still a bunch of elements. Like there's the nice settings menu and all these new menus that they've migrated over. But then even in Windows Eleven, there's still stuff that sends you to the control panel. Mm-hmm. The the task manager is not available in dark mode. The right click menu is confu- like confusing based on where you click like, and what menu you're in. All that kind of stuff. I think if they would have streamlined it and made it. Like when you look at a screenshot, you know this is Windows 11 because it has a unified language as opposed to this like duct tape patched together <laughs> three different fonts and UIs and everything. That Not that that would make people upgrade, but I think it would make Windows 11 have more of its own identity. Well, really, I mean, what you've just described there, that's all stuff that should have been sorted out for Windows 10. It certainly oh, yeah, shouldn't I, I still do. be hanging around in Windows 11, should it? Right, because when Windows 10 came out, there was even more of that. I mean, because there was a lot of pretty new stuff, but then, like like you said, you pulled the curtain back, and, oh, it's the control panel again that looks exactly the same as Windows 7. Yeah. And they had years to, to change that stuff, but they did it so slowly. 
I, I, I remember one specific thing they, on, on the settings app. They said, okay, in the next version, when you open up the settings app, there's going to be like your little profile with your profile picture and like a link to your Microsoft account. They delayed that like four times. Now that's a minor thing, but that's what I mean where like they had so many revisions to just do a UI overhaul and it never happened to keep everything consistent. So I agree that was kind of slow. Yeah, definitely. Uh, this is a bit of a quirky thing. Tiny Linux distro lets you boot up and blow away Doom Demons. Basically, this is Doom Linux, a Linux distro that incorporates Doom, the original 1993 shooter from ID Software. It's definitely a distribution for anything, huh? <laughs> um, so, uh, basically, it um, features BusyBox, a minimal suite of Linux utilities, and FB Doom, a version of the game that runs in the Linux console. Um and then, yeah, basically you have Doom Linux, which is a computer that boots straight into Doom. Uh, you may know that, or you may not, but um, there's a kind of a challenge for a lot of uh, um, coders and developers that to get Doom to run on pretty much anything. And it has been shown to run on pretty much anything over the years, from fridges to um, Porsche 911s to ATMs to office phones and graphical calculators. There's also a version of Doom that will run in a BIOS um, called Core Doom. Uh, so, yeah, that's part of the um, Core Boot BIOS, which is uh, intended for uh, newer computers, including uh, a few Google Chromebooks. Uh, so, so, yeah, so Doom uh, refuses to die. Uh, we, I mean, we, <laughs> we were talking about Doom just a few weeks ago when uh, John Romero released a, uh, some new levels in order to raise money for Ukraine. So it's, it's just that game that will not die. I mean, it definitely has the legacy of it. I think if a game is going to be like that, it should be. I mean, Doom revolutionized so many things, shooters yeah. and game design and speed running. I mean, it's a very important game in the history of games for many reasons. I mean, it's probably in the top five at least. So, I mean, if there is a game that deserves to be that, Doom makes sense. But, yeah, that is funny how it just – maybe one of these days – I'm sure actually someone's already done this. You'll be able to play Doom in Doom. <laughs> double layer of doom break it down where it's like it's 8-bit now it's 4-bit now it's 2-bit now it's just a binary system where you have to move one bit at a time <laughs> it might happen okay retaining the video game topic which we uh, seem to have got into there. Um, there's a thing called scumming. Now, I didn't know what scumming was, although apparently I have been doing it for a very, very long time indeed. Um, and it's a strategy that you might use in games for creating save games. Ben, can you expand on this for us, please? I can. Thank you for coming out as a scummer so early, though. I, I, I thought you couldn't you couldn't hold it in if I was talking about it this whole time and you knew that you were a scummer yourself. Um, yes. Yeah, so safe scumming is a uh, I guess a strategy or a term in games that essentially means regularly saving your game and reloading it to try to optimize some part of the game. 
Um, it's most common in games that let you save anywhere. So a lot of like RPGs or immersive sims, those types of games where you can just save anywhere and pick up. Um, it's more common there, obviously, than a game that auto saves or has like a set save point. Um, so basically, yeah, safe scumming is a way to kind of manipulate the game's randomness. Um, so one good example is in Fallout 3, um, you have a stat called speech that affects how easily you can persuade people. So there's certain dialogue options where if your speech is high enough, you'll be able to convince them to like pay you more money for doing a job or like to, they'll give you a key when they normally wouldn't want to give you the key. And when you do that, you'll see a box that says like speech 50%, which means you have a 50% chance of of passing the speech check and them doing what you want. Now, normally, if you fail it, you can't try it again. So what people will do to save scum is they'll save their game, try the speech check. If they fail, reload the save game and then just try it over and over and over. So you don't really have to have a high speech skill to, to do these things. You just have to sit there and reload your save over and over and over. Um, other types of save scumming might be if you're playing like a strategy game and your guy has a 50% chance of hitting his target, you save, shoot. If he misses, you reload and then just keep doing that. Um, or you might save and then anytime something bad happens, you reload your save. So if, if you're trying to play a stealth game, for example, and you accidentally alert somebody, as soon as something goes wrong, you just reload your save and try again. Um, so save scumming can be useful in certain cases. Um, if you're playing a game where the only consequence to failing is just wasting your time and going back through stuff you already beat, it's not really save scumming to just save whenever you've cleared something. Um, but it kind of can ruin games if you do it constantly like that. Because uh, part of the fun of games is that randomness. Like in Fallout, if you want to have a high speech character, you should put the points into it instead of just cheesing every time it comes up. Um, and Game Maker's Toolkit, which is a great YouTube channel on game design, has a really good video that I linked in this article called Playing Past Your Mistakes. And he talks about the really the fun situations that can arise when you make a mistake in a game and then just see what happens. So in a stealth game, instead of immediately reloading your save every time you screw up, just see what happens. And then interesting stories can happen. You know, you might barely overcome the odds after you made a critical mistake and it feels really good to recover or discover something in a game you didn't know was there. So... It saves coming overall, it kind of turns a game into like a optimization strategy, which if, especially if you're playing a game for the first time is just not a super fun way to play. So that's kind of a summary of it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, hmm. there are certain games that I've used that strategy with a lot and others where, you know, it's either not possible to do or you just kind of cope, I suppose, or you get a bit cocky and you don't bother doing it. Right, and then you regret it, and then you have to yeah, push yeah. on. But that's how, like I said, that's how good stories are made in games. And yeah. some games have systems built in to prevent this. So I, one of the XCOM games, all of the random dice rolls that happen in a battle are like preset at the beginning. So you can't, if you save and then try a shot and you miss, if you reload that save, you'll still miss again because all those dice rolls were already saved. Um, and I think I think Fire Emblem Three Houses, one of the newest games in the series, has a system where you can rewind a decision like three times per battle, which kind of combat save scumming, so you're not constantly saving and going back. So there's a built-in mechanic in the game to undo, so you have a few chances to correct mistakes, but it's not an unlimited system. So it's, it's something you have to police yourself, I think, but if you, if you use it too much, it can definitely ruin your impact, uh, your enjoyment of a game. Yeah. Well, yeah, possibly. I don't know. I don't know. I... Uh... 
The games I've used it on the most are probably Civilization, Civilization 2, and a few in the uh, Football Manager or Championship Manager series back in the day. And I don't know if they did ruin my enjoyment. I think they possi- it possibly enhanced my enjoyment considerably. It's difficult to say, isn't it? Because you don't know. You don't know the well, alternative. Well, I th- it depends on the scope. Because there's a difference between I'm going to save and then if something goes horribly wrong, I'm going re- to restart versus I'm going to save and then cl- click the- do this 30 times until I get the best possible result. Yeah. There's kind yeah. of a difference there. Like I do that in most games. I make several save slots. So if I want to go back, I can do that. But yeah, that's sure. also that's also partially for like that's more for like if my save data gets corrupted, I have more than one file. That's that's more why I do that more than just to like rewind the, the clock like that. Like when I played Dishonored recently, I think we talked about Immersive Sims a few shows ago. That game encourages experimentation. So in that game, I do save quite a bit because if you're going to try something stupid and it doesn't work, you don't want to like ruin your whole run of the level. I try not to, like I said, I try to still play through my mistakes. And if something happens, just go with it. Um, but also, yeah, I do save because if you're going to try something silly, you don't want to throw away an hour of progress. So Okay, let's move on to, um, well... How to shut down or put Windows 10 and 11 to sleep with a keyboard shortcut. Now, I, um, I'm i a big fan of locking it. I've never really considered shutting down with a keyboard shortcut. I just use the, win- the Windows key and L, which also works in other operating systems. That is a useful shortcut, especially if you're in an office or somewhere where there's other people around. That's like second nature for me to to do that when I get up from my computer, even though I'm at home and there's nobody else here. Um, that's just kind of second nature from working in an office for a while. That is yeah. a useful one. There's five ways, and I'm, I'm seeing the first one. I think I know this one, which is to press uh, Win plus X to open the Power User menu, then press U to expand shut down, and then press U again to shut down. But there's other options there. You can press R to restart, you can press S to put Windows to sleep, you can use H to hibernate, or you can use I to simply log out. But what are the other options? Yeah, that's right. So that menu uses um, alt, alt, kind of the it's the same principle as those alt underlines in some uh, apps. When you hit the alt button, and it highlights different yeah. letters in each option. So that that's kind of, it's not a full keyboard shortcut, I guess. But yeah, so some of the other options are um, this is kind of a little known one. So you might know that when you press alt and F4 together, it closes the current app. It's like clicking the X in the top right corner. But if you press alt and F4 when you don't have an app in focus, um, you'll pull up a little box that says shut down Windows. And then you can choose from that box to put it to sleep or restart or whatever. Um, so if you want to try that, an easy way to do it is to click on your taskbar and then press Alt F4, and that will uh, that that'll open up that box. And then from there, to continue with the keyboard shortcuts, you can use the arrow keys to mouse through that dialog box and then hit Enter to hit OK. So that's one of them. Right. And then one of the other ones is you can create your own shortcut. Um, so the exact steps are a little bit long to, to, to talk over, so you can read the, the linked article for that. But um, you can make your own shortcut to different commands in Windows. So you can create a, uh, a new sh- uh, shortcut that goes to a command line command and then actually set your own keyboard shortcut for it. And then whenever you hit that combo of keys, you just immediately shut down or uh, put your computer to sleep. That's Which something that useful. a lot of people don't do, isn't it, with um, with Windows, is rely on shortcuts. Keep, keep like th- those kind of um, uh, customized shortcuts, user-generated yeah. shortcuts. It's not something that happens kind of naturally, is it? It's sometimes, I mean, I th- you, 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 don't you use an app that, or used to use an app that lets you set shortcuts? I use Auto Hotkey for yeah. like a global autocorrect, and then I have a couple. I don't, I, there's so much more I could do with it. I don't use it very much, but... 
Well, that, that, that's a different podcast anyway, isn't it? So That's true, that's true. <laughs> um, so you can also make your power button into a sleep shortcut as well using the uh, Windows power options, which again is quite detailed, so you'd need to consult the main article for that. And if your keyboard has a sleep button on it, which depends on your keyboard, if it's uh, separate to your computer or um, your laptop keyboard, uh, it may have a sleep button on it, which you can use. That's right. That's not ever. I don't know if I've ever had a laptop with a sleep button, but they are they are there. Um, can be a little bit of annoying if you hit them by accident, obviously. But I guess you know it makes more sense. The lock keep shortcut is a little bit more accessible because you lock more often than you go to sleep on your computer, I guess. But still good to know. You know if your maybe your mouse isn't working or you just prefer to build up that muscle memory to save you a few seconds a day. That adds up. Okay, let's us move on. Now, I am looking at a dual screen setup at the moment. I'm using Ubuntu 22.04 LTS, and my desktop background is repeated on both my laptop and the monitor that is attached. And they display a nice kind of well, I say nice it's the it's kind of a it's a it's a beach on a wet and windy day and uh, it's nice to me because it feels like home um that's <laughs> just where I live yeah, the beach <laughs> but wet and windy it's like a little bit of good a little bit of eh. <laughs> yeah um and then there's a little bit of blue sky appearing at the top and that is my desktop wallpaper I've had many desktop wallpapers over the years, things from shows about time travel to um, rock bands featuring Jimmy Page on guitar to um, pictures of uh, women in skimpy clothing, all sorts <laughs> of things on my desktop background over the years. And uh, desktop wallpapers, uh, I mean, one of the biggest things when I first started getting online was uh, websites providing desktop wallpapers. They're one of, one of my favorite things to go to. And they're still kind of important, aren't they, Ben? I think so. Yeah, I'm I'm a fan of wallpapers. Just I usually go for grabbing some new ones whenever I play a new video game that I like, or just I like I you know it's just fun to have pictures of the Earth that kind of stuff. So it is fun to add new ones, uh, especially if you have more than one monitor and you want to deck them out in separate wallpapers. Do you have a particular favorite type? Type of wallpaper? You mean yeah. like the subject? The subject or tone? Um, I like, so this is kind of specific, but I'm looking at the four that are on my monitor right now. So I have one from Ace Attorney, the game. I have one from Persona 5, which is my favorite game. I have one Calvin and Hobbes, and then one that's a Joe and Mac, which is a game I haven't played. But, so the, the Joe and Mac one and the Calvin and Hobbes one, I love them because they mix, like, a real-world photograph with cartoon elements. So the Calvin and Hobbes one has them hiding behind a tree with, like, a, a snowman monster, like a two-headed monster from mm-hmm. the comic and then the joe and mac one is, is a picture of a lake with some mountains behind it and it has the, the sprites from the game in front of it so i love that mix of a, a photo with elements that weren't originally in it added in right i think those right. are those are clever i'm i'm very keen on uncomplicated images um that are largely rely on a as kind of a limited palette i don't mean like four or five colors but from you know from the same sort of uh range of colors yeah i agree with you there's actually a website in this list i'll, um, I'll discuss in a second that's called okay. simple desktops and they're all about 
very like f- like flat colors, small elements, like very basic. I like those for my lock screen. Um, I usually change my lock screen I, photo once once a month or so, and I like simple ones there because if it's too busy, you can't see the rest of the stuff on it, which makes it kind of yeah yeah kind of productive. So, so tell us about this list that you've uh, compiled of the best down uh, best download sites for high res HD wallpapers for the desktop. Sure. So these are the best sites I found. They say high res, but they're so. There, everything's available in like 1920 by 1080, which is full HD or above, yep. but there's also lower ones too. So these have something for everyone. Um, so Interface Lift is, is a good one. So this is one that I, I mentioned I love pictures like the Earth. This is all pictures from photographers. Uh, some of them tell you what camera equipment they used or what day they took it or that kind of thing where they, sh- they shot it. So really pu- pu- beautiful pictures of oceans, lakes, fields, anything like that. Um, Let's see. Wallhaven's another good one. That one lets you search by tag. It lets you search by like color too. So if there's a certain color scheme you're going for with your your wallpaper, you can search by that. Um, a lot of filters for the type too. Uh, whether it's like a photograph or has real people in it. I think there's an anime tag too. Uh, if you're looking for that, uh, Reddit's always a good source. So there's r slash wallpaper and r slash wallpapers, which are two different sources. Um, those are user submitted. So some of these other sites. Once you go through them, you've kind of seen it all, whereas Reddit, there's always new stuff uh, to be found, and there's all kinds of variety that people come up with there. Um, Simple Desktops is the one that I mentioned. Usually they have, like, one color as the background and then, like, a small little swing set or rocket ship or just, like, very basic flat icons like that. Um, And there's a couple other sites, too. They they kind of all blend together. You know, you can search by resolution, uh, download your images. Most of them are pretty simple. Some of them let you only download uh, after 10 seconds, which is a bit of a pain. But, yeah, there's a lot of sources for whatever you're into, whether it's stuff from media or just photographs of landscapes of the world. Uh, There's a lot to choose from and in pretty much every size. So what I recommend is making a folder on your computer for all your favorite wallpapers. And then on whatever OS, they all support making a wallpaper slideshow. So you can go in and tell it every 10 minutes, refresh my wallpaper, and then you don't have to get sick of your current one and change it all the time. You can just let it refresh and enjoy the slideshow of everything you've come up with. And you can add to it at any time. Excellent. Yeah, there's... um... The old wallpapers are, um, I mean, you don't have to use them, do you? You can just like stick to a plain color. Yeah, you well, can do that too. Just basic color or, I mean, your own photographs too. You know, if you take pictures, um, those a lot of those would probably make good shots. Yeah. Maybe maybe some of your family for brightening your day or even like oh. motivational quotes can help whenever you see those. Whatever works for you. I see enough of my family during the day without having them on my computer as well. <laughs> oh, um, now listen, uh in terms of uh, wallpapers, just while we're talking about it, now I mentioned earlier, I like a very kind of um, uh, uncomplicated background. I like a nice photo, it has to be uncomplicated. But the other thing I like to do with my desktop is keep my icons at an absolute minimum. So, for example, right now, I'm just minimizing everything, I have two desktop icons on Linux. I have my home folder. And I have a shortcut to Trelby. Uh, on my Windows laptop, I have probably about eight icons at the most, and over half of those are games. What about you, Ben? 
Yeah, I have way more than that, but it's, <laughs> I, I, I know I'm I'm like you to where I don't like stuff on my desktop either. I probably have I don't know twenty five right now. Okay, but the part of the, for me it's like a sorting thing where I, I I use it for basically when I have a file that I want to I know I want to know where it is, but I'm not ready to put it somewhere else yet. It ends up on my desktop. So like for for a great example, when I built my computer in February March and I sent away for the $20 rebate for the case that I bought that okay. just came two days ago. So I sent away for it in you know, three months being generous. It was supposed to, you know, however long it's supposed to take. So like if something happens, I want to make sure I have that rebate form accessible. So I keep it on my desktop until the rebates process, which I just got. So now I can delete that. Um, but it's just, it's just stuff like that. Where I don't want to throw it in some folder. What I need to do is take a long time and fix my overall PC organization because it's it's a little messy and then i wouldn't have to worry about having stuff on the desktop to keep track of it but mm. that's for another day so i like a small amount of icons too i agree because i keep stuff pinned in my taskbar or just search for it i don't like the icons to be on the desktop because that clutters your wallpaper and that brings us to my favorite part of the show our recommendations uh this is part of the show where we um describe to you show you the link tell you why we're recommending it and it's something that you might be interested in checking out now by a coincidence they're both video games this week and it's basically a um fight to the finish which one of us is going to go first uh how about you go first because i feel like i've been talking a lot today okay then <laughs> um i was gonna say i agree no uh seriously <laughs> no. <laughs> shut up <laughs> uh okay so I have been playing a game called Gdarius HD, which is a 1997 release, um, the fourth game in the Darius series, which is uh, kind of uh, Japanese shooters. I think they're from Taito originally. It's been released on... Yeah, the first game came out in 1987, certainly in Europe and North America, um, though Taito incorporated it in 1986. This is the fourth game in the series, which was re-released on Nintendo Switch uh, last year, and then there's been a new version uh, with a few fixes and a couple of extra features released this year, just a few weeks ago. And I've been playing this quite a bit because I uh, reviewed it from my website, gamingretro.co.uk. And sometimes when I get things to review, I'm not that keen on them. And I try really hard to play them and, you know, I can appreciate how good they are. This is awesome, though. I'm really amazed I didn't know about this game beforehand. It's, it's, it looks, at first, like a standard sort of left-to-right um, spaceship shooter where you're killing all the alien fleets and, they're, you know, they're coming in waves and stuff and you shoot them and you grab the power-ups and stuff and you prove yourself improve your ship and stronger and then you have end-of-level boss. And, yes, it does all that, but it has two key features it has more than that but these are the two key features i'm going to describe number one you get to choose your route through the game i um, love that between each level and also at parts during the level the screen actually splits and you can go so like top or bottom and it'll take you to a different path that's the first great thing the second great thing is even greater than that because you don't pick, although there are power-ups you can also capture enemy ships and use them as your kind of little satellite weapons or shields, which is absolutely fantastic. There's all sorts okay. of insane sort of alien ships in there that you can 
grab from sort of uh, basic drones to sort of mid-level bosses and use them as your kind of your slave or slash drone ship. And then they can be then used against the bosses and stuff. It's really cool. And they can also be detonated for extra. <laughs> oh, it's superb. It's such a fun game. Uh, I, I was playing it um, alone for about two weeks. And then a couple of days ago, I uh, I said to my son, Bruce, I said, do you want to play this? Because it's got a two-player mode. Oh, yeah, it's got a two-player mode as well, people. And see, see what it's like, see if you like it. And we started playing it, and he absolutely loved it. And it's really a smart game. And I'm... I'm glad I found it at last. This is the HD version, so there's upgraded graphics in it. But you know, it's a, it's um, it's currently on sale uh, for about half price, forty percent off. You, but in the pack, you also get the older, the original version. So it's got the original sort of nineteen ninety eight graphics in it as well. If you want to play the proper retro style version, but it's such a fun shooter. I haven't had so so much fun with a side scrolling shooter like this in many a many a year so highly recommended from me that's uh, i've never heard of this series but this looks interesting i don't have a ton of experience with like shoot 'em ups like that i've played one of the greatest games that was on super nintendo but that's about it but this looks uh -huh. pretty pretty interesting i love branching paths i don't know if I've, if I've ever talked about super or star fox 64 on the show but i yeah. love that game has branching paths where you know certain objectives you complete in a stage you, every every path through the game is different. There's right. 15 planets, but you can only go to seven in a playthrough. So oh, right. I, yeah, that's really good replayability. Let's have to take a look at this. So what have you got, Ben? I've also got a game because uh, that's what I tend to do in my free time, and I like to recommend my games that I find that are super cool. Um, this game is called Floppy Nights, and it just came out <laughs> on us. <laughs> yeah, it's a funny name. Um, just came out on Steam and Xbox, and it is part of Game Pass. So if you have Game Pass, you can play it there. Um, it is a turn-based strategy and deck-building game. So the reason it's called Floppy Nights is that you play as a uh, girl named Phoebe who's an inventor, and she has a little, like, smart robot, I guess, on her wrist called Carlton, and she has floppy disks that, like, old computer floppy disks okay. that she puts into Carlton, and then he creates, like, projections called Floppy Nights that are little, like, creatures that you can control. Um, so it's a fairly standard... Um, turn-based strategy game you know you can move a certain amount of spaces but combining it with the deck building aspect makes it really enjoyable so you get you unlock cards as you go and you can create your own deck and then every turn you have so much energy you can use and every card costs a different amount of energy so it's the strategy of building your deck and then playing your cards well and then also the strategy element of uh, whatever your objective is maybe it's to kill all the enemies or to capture a base or to defend an objective for five turns or whatever like that so um, the reason I was drawn to this game is that I played a uh, roguelike dice based game called Dicey Dungeons last year love right. that game and the artist for that game's name is Marlo Dobb, and she did uh, the art for Floppy Nights. So I was following her, um, and she posted about this this game she made with this different studio. So it's rare that I would play a game just for the art style, but I love her art so much um, from Dicey Dungeons that I wanted to check this out. So the music's really good, and I'm not generally I'm not very good at turn-based strategy games, and I haven't really enjoyed deck-building games I've played before. But I have liked this game. It's pretty accessible. Um, it's not super hard to get into, and it's pretty it's challenging, but it's not like overly punished. So um, if you kind of sound like anything in there would be enjoyable to you, or if you've kind of been like me and haven't really loved these genres before, it might be one that uh, that turns you over. But definitely check out the art and the music, no matter what, because it's it's pretty great. So that's uh, Floppy Nights. Uh, it's available on Game Pass and Steam. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of this week's really useful podcast. I hope that with the news we gave you at the 
beginning of the show that you've uh, learned a bit about um, the things that you use and what you can do with them. And I hope that the tips and tricks that we gave you have helped to improve your life or at least your understanding of the tech that you've got in front of you. And if those recommendations don't suit you, we'll be along with a few more next week, along with the latest news and tech tips. Until then, it's goodbye from us.